Welcome to the Development Policy Centre. In this podcast entitled Australia's Foreign Aid Dilemma, you'll hear Jack Corbett launch his new book. The session is opened by Stephen Howes and Michael Wesley introduces Jack. Jack explores questions such as how, in the absence of popular support, can the Australian aid program achieve the political legitimacy required to safeguard its budget and administering institutions? We hope you enjoy this podcast. Uh, my name is Stephen Howes. I'm the director of the Development Policy Centre. I'd like to welcome you all. Thank you for coming to this book launch and seminar. And I'd also like to begin by acknowledging the first Australians, the traditional owners of the land in which we're meeting. Um, let's pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. Uh, so talking about past and present, it's good to see lots of uh, old friends here and uh, quite a few past Ausaid staff, maybe a few present ones. Um, but thanks everyone for coming. It's good to see the interest uh, in this. Um, and really we've got two um, functions today. One is to launch uh, this book by Jack Corbett, Australia's Foreign Aid Dilemma, Humanitarian Aspirations Confront Democratic Legitimacy. And then second is to uh, participate in a seminar by Jack you know, about the book. Um, so we're rolling those two together and I'm delighted to uh, be able to welcome our Dean, uh, Michael Wesley, uh, Professor of International Relations and Dean of the College of Asia and the Pacific, uh, to launch Jack's book. So Michael's going to uh, first of all, say a few words about the book, uh, launch it, make sure we get that on camera, and then we'll uh, hand over to Jack uh, for the seminar. So just so that I don't have to speak again, uh, Jack is now Associate Professor of Politics at the University of Southampton over in the UK, uh, but of course, I'm sure many of you know him. He's a former colleague. He did his PhD here uh, at the ANU, and he was also a, uh, a research fellow uh, with SSGM right, uh, in the Bell School, and he started the book uh, or oh, then you actually then you went to Griffith, didn't you? So, but anyway, it's uh, great to have you back, and he's still a visiting fellow um, in the in the college. Uh, but now I'll uh, hand over to Michael. So please welcome Michael Wesley. Stephen, thank you. Um, I I note that people are still trickling in. I I actually wanted to come to last week's um, Development Policy Centre seminar and uh, came a little bit late and actually drove here and couldn't find a park and ended up giving up so I can sympathise with all of you who, who find themselves in that position. So it's a, it's a great honour to be asked to come and um, to uh, launch this book. Uh, it's not often that you read a book that starts with a personal admonition. Um, so Jack points out quite accurately, I must say, that um, in a book that I co-wrote with Alan Gingell, several years ago on making Australian foreign policy, we only mention aid twice in the book. Um, and he's dead right, and I'm deeply embarrassed by that. <laughs> and I can, I can reassure you, Jack, that it's all Alan Gingell's fault. Um, I wanted to put a whole chapter on aid. In, no, that's not true. Um, it was very much an oversight. And so, uh, you know, it is uh, and, and, uh, and a salutary oversight as well. Because really, um, that personal admonition um, really does bring out and, and establish quite clearly, for me at least, um, one of the great things about aid, one of the most important things about aid in the Australian context, and that is its strange invisibility. So towards the end of the book, um, Jack quotes from Alexander, no, sorry, from a um, from an Ausaid staff member, uh, and and he he the the quote reads as follows: I remember there was an all staff meeting, and he, meaning Downer, said, "quote You know, I want to congratulate you, you all, after another good year. You kept out of the headlines." End quote. Uh, and uh, this, as you read the book, you realise. Uh, a couple of things that, firstly, the invisibility of aid in the Australian context is particularly bizarre. Um, it's particularly bizarre and galling to me personally because reading this book really convinced me not only of what an enormous part 
Australia's aid and development program plays in Australia's relations with the rest of the world. But furthermore, it's also one of the most politically rich and complex uh, foreign policy subjects to study. So as I turned each page of this, I found myself kicking myself and saying, why didn't you think of doing something like this? So well done, Jack. Um, Jack states very early on that the dilemma of Australia's aid is that uh, it combines extremely shallow public support and, in fact, public awareness of our aid program with a heavy reliance on executive discretion. And therefore, uh, the point, and I'm, I hope I'm not stealing your thunder for your seminar, Jack, um, is that uh, the Australian aid program has relied quite heavily on three forms of legitimacy. And Jack defines these as firstly policy legitimacy or the ability of aid to support other policy objectives of the Australian government. Secondly, technical legitimacy, uh, by which he means that aid is something that's very hard to get right and so needs a highly developed knowledge base and an expertise base to get it right. And thirdly, administrative legitimacy, uh, which means that aid is hard to get right and so it needs high levels of bureaucratic competence in its planning and its delivery. John Ayres, my goodness. My Good to see you. <laughs> Good to see you. <laughs> Welcome. Apologies for interrupting. <laughs> I, I just finished talking about you. No, just kidding. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, however, uh, really intriguingly, he points out that achieving each form of legitimacy in the Australian aid program can also open up other areas of weakness and critique. Policy legitimacy can drag aid away from its core purpose. Technical legitimacy opens up charges that our aid agencies have been captured by global policy discussions and dragged away from Australia's national interests. And aiming for administrative legitimacy gives rise to inevitable tensions between at times incompatible demands for internal and external policy coherence. So this is a book that packs a hell of a lot into not a lot of pages. And it's actually a story told in two parts. The first part of the book is a history of the Australian aid program that stretches from the Colombo plan through to the Turnbull government. Uh, the second part of the book is a much more detailed analysis of the three legitimacy paradoxes that I was referring to just, just now. Uh, the history section, I think, uh, has needed to be written for a very, very long time. I think really it's only insiders that have really understood uh, the real complexities, uh, all of the bewildering acronyms uh, that uh, our aid program has gone through and why they've gone through them. And in this book, you suddenly get um, an authoritative and highly informative history of the complex evolution of our aid program. It, uh, even though Jack does start at the Colombo plan, he really focuses in on the administrations uh, of Australian governments since the, since the beginning of an independent aid program under ADAB. So he goes from Whitlam all the way through to Turnbull, Turnbull and the chapters are conveniently divided into the different governments. So the Whitlam government, the Fraser government, Hawke Keating, uh, uh, Howard, um, Rudd Gillard and then Abbott Turnbull. What's even more interesting is that Jack explicitly adopts the court politics approach. This is uh, something I think that he absorbed from Pat Weller up at, uh, up at Griffith University, which is really looking at how individuals and their relationships have shaped the institutional evolution of the aid program. And what we see in that history is an absolute roller coaster of a ride of a program. In fact, I found myself sort of reflecting whether any other policy area uh, that the Australian government manages has gone through such wild swings and changes along the way in what's relatively a short period of time. Certainly, I think if you compare it to the Australian 
foreign policy history um, that Alan Gingell has so recently, so eloquently written about, you can see much more variation and change in the Australian aid program over that period of time. As Jack said, this is a roller coaster, and, uh, and uh, to quote him, aid has been vulnerable to both grand gestures and to savage cuts, which goes back to um, uh, that shallow public support and heavy reliance on executive discretion. What's really interesting for me is that there are real similarities in how different governments come at the aid problem and manage aid. Um, after Whitlam, succession of governments came to office cutting aid quite significantly at the start and then scaling aid back up towards the end of their administration. So you get this kind of wave pattern that goes through. The exceptions, of course, being Whitlam and, of course, Turnbull. They came to... Uh, to government with a savage cut and then kept on cutting. Uh, Jack also provides in his history a context of shifting global rationales for, for aid and development from its Cold War original context to globalisation after the Cold War to the era of transnational threats to uh, most recently the celebrity uh, make poverty history campaigns. It's very much a story of personalities and ideas. Jack uh, takes care to provide really informative pen portraits of ministers and directors general of Australia's various aid agencies. Um, it's also a history of public intellectuals, gratifyingly, a lot of them from here at the ANU, stretching from Sir John Crawford and Peter Drysdale through to Helen Hughes and Stephen Howes, of course. Uh, it sketches out the importance of periodic reviews of the aid program, from the Jackson to the Simons to the Holway reviews, which really have brought together at periodic intervals uh, a confluence of global trends and debates, uh, political currents and considerations of political cover and different dilemmas concerning legitimacy and results in the aid program. It's a dramatic tale often of rivalries and political fortunes, but also a coherent, if not unidirectional, evolution of Australia's approaches to its aid program. A couple of interesting vignettes, I think. Um, Jack, uh, uh, concentrates at length, and I think at justifiable length, on the politics around the cancellation of the DIFF program and, and, and uh, some of the consequences of that, which was um, significantly that the Australian aid program moved at that stage permanently from uh, having a triple mandate, uh, which was commercial, humanitarian and strategic, to a double mandate, humanitarian and strategic. He also deals with the considerable changes that occurred in what I think of as Australia's state-building moment, um, the aftermath of the intervention into East Timor and then, of course, Ramsey, the ECP in Papua New Guinea, uh, and, uh, and uh, the whole of government tensions that were, um, that were raised by that. He uh, talks at length in the, in, later in the history about the scale-up that began under Howard and, of course, continued under Rudd. Um, and uh, the complex politics that went with the scale-up. And, of course, there is those really intriguing what-ifs, uh, the, uh, the, the prominence that came to the aid program, the tensions that crept in to relations with other agencies, and the common view uh, that you hear around this town that AusAid really... Uh, the fate of AusAid was really a result of those complex tensions. It leads you to, to, uh, to reflect on whether it was really Bob Dunn's approach, the, you know, the keep a low profile and don't aggravate anyone, that could have preserved AusAid as an independent agency rather than the Peter Baxter in-your-face approach. <coughs> the second part of the book, as I said, examines each of the legitimacy dilemmas, the three legitimacy dilemmas I mentioned at the start, allowing a different and more detailed focus on the policy debates and dilemmas at hand. These chapters, and I won't go into them at great length because I'm, I'm assuming that Jack's seminar will, um, uh, 
they, uh, they serve as a more general meditation uh, on, uh, on the issues uh, involved in development assistance and aid, as well on uh, the political di uh, dilemmas and tensions that can dog all aid programs, not just the Australian aid program. I found myself finishing the second part of this book thinking it would be absolutely fascinating to have these three dilemmas developed in a comparative context, to see how uh, the Australian management of these dilemmas compares to the British management of them, to the Scandinavian management of them, to the American uh, management of them. Jack, perhaps that's your next project um, uh, after the, the, the current two that you're working on. Um, Interest, interestingly, I think that the chapter on professionalisation, uh, the second last chapter of the book, asks some really important questions about the post-merger post Australian aid program, and a, a particularly about Australia's ability to speak authoritatively into global debates on aid, and even, even more so, whether these debates really are as important as they once were. So, ladies and gentlemen, Stephen's asked me not to talk too long. I've already talked too long. Uh, this is a genuinely path-breaking book. I enjoyed reading every page of this book. Couldn't put it down, actually. Um, it puts Australian aid as a really legitimate subject for serious analysis well and truly on the map, both for public discussion and for academic uh, analysis as well. Congratulations, Jack. It's a terrific book. It's beautifully written. Uh, it's full of really important detail, not only for those who are um, specialising in development and aid, uh, but those who are interested in Australia and its ro uh, role in the world more generally. So with that, I uh, very happily declare this book uh, dutifully launched. Thank you. Thanks everyone for coming. I'm a little bit blown away, to be honest, by the turnout, uh, which is very unusual for an academic seminar that people actually come. Um, <laughs> I, I guess the um, the first thing I need to do is thank Michael for such a, a lovely uh, launch. I really appreciate that. I particularly appreciate that you've now launched two of my books in the last couple of weeks. <laughs> I feel that's well and truly beyond the call of duty. Uh, um, and, and what I should say also is something about the admonishment, um, which is mostly thank you for leaving something for the rest of us to write about. Uh, and in particular, um, a number of the chapters in the, in the second part of the book, I think, are inspired by, by that book, Making Australian Foreign Policy, which I'm pretty sure I describe as excellent in, in the book. So it wasn't really, it was, if, as far as admonishments go, I think it's uh, a good one. Um, the other thing I want to do before I begin is just to thank Stephen, really, uh, and the centre, because um, it's, well, it's no, it's no exaggeration to say that without Stephen's support, this book wouldn't have been written. Um, when I first floated the idea for this book, uh, mostly what I received from colleagues was sort of blank stares. Why would you want to write a history of Ozaid? Um, but Stephen saw the value in the project right from the beginning. Um, he backed it uh, financially throughout. Uh, he provided comments um, on the text. Uh, he provided the graphs that I'm going to use in a second. Uh, and so basically, as I said, this, this wouldn't have been done without Stephen. Um, and I'll be forever grateful for that. Uh, and I'm really glad that Michael drew out this sort of comparison to John Crawford, Helen Hughes, because um, I think it's very appropriate to fit Stephen into that conversation as far as uh, aid and development policy uh, at the ANU. So, yeah, thank you. And if there's a round of applause, but, yeah. Um, so what I've been asked to do is essentially uh, provide a summary of the book, which is what I'll do. I'll, um, is that? You want me to stand there? <laughs> I don't know if I can do that. I'm a walker. 
Okay. Um, Writing a summary of this book uh, in 25 minutes is a slightly daunting task for three reasons. The first is um, the first is a number of you in the room are in the book, uh, <laughs> and so I'm going to I'm going to tell you a history back to you, uh, and hopefully hopefully it's right. Um, <laughs> The second reason it's daunting is normally when you give an academic seminar, uh, you're giving uh, a talk about a piece of work that isn't finished yet. And so when you get hard questions, you can sort of say, oh, thanks for that. I'll take that on board. <laughs> but obviously the book is finished. Uh, so I'll have to sort of stand and fight, which will be very much uh, counter my character. Um, and the third reason is I obviously finished writing the book about a year ago and uh, anyone who's written a book will know that it's a really bad idea to reread your own book. Um, mostly because people think you're vain if they catch you at it. Um, <laughs> but also because you read things and you think, oh. oh. Uh, anyway, so for the purpose of the seminar, though, I had to, to reread it. Uh, and so um, uh, that was a daunting task in itself. As... Um, Michael pointed out, the book is essentially about this dilemma. There are many stories of the Australian aid program that can be told, um, but this was the one that I was interested in exploring. How, in the absence of deep popular support, should it generate the political legitimacy required to safeguard its budget and its administrative institution? So let me start with the deep popular support, because basically if you don't buy that assumption, the rest of the book won't make any sense. So uh, we have a series of surveys that we can rely on um, that tries to gauge popular support for the aid program. Uh, in general, these show a steady increase in popular support. Um, if you look at the start in the sort of 80s, it's around 70%. Some of the more recent surveys talk about 90%. Uh, so on that measure, we might say that popular support for the aid program um, has risen. Certainly, if you ask people, should Australia have an aid program, uh, most Australians will say yes, sure. Uh, if you ask them um, how much aid do we give or should we give, the answer will more likely be too much. <laughs> give too much. Or wildly exaggerated figures, right? 10% of GDP or something like that. So essentially what I argue in the book is that um, there might be broad-based popular support, but it's relatively shallow. Uh, it certainly doesn't decide elections. Um, it probably influences a very, few, uh, a very small proportion of people's votes. And to that extent, the legitimacy of the aid program rests very heavily on uh, executive discretion. And that's essentially the story that the book tells, is how the, how the fortunes of aid have risen and fallen over, um, over the decades. In social scientific terms, it's, I've got the sort of social scientific question there at the bottom, which is this, uh, given that the popular support question is relatively stable, albeit weak, uh, why does the budget and its ministering institution rise and fall? And that should essentially give you a clue that this is a camera story. Uh, I don't talk very much about um, uh, how the aid is spent or um, the types of projects and programs that happen overseas. That's an important story, but it's not the one that I tell here. This is, this is very much a story about institutions um, and the actors that work within them. And there are a number of reasons why I think it's significant. Mike sort of pointed to the, um, the point that this is silence in Australian foreign policy thinking about aid, and my hope was to fill that silence somewhat. Um, in, in relation to global debates about development, these debates about aid programs tend to be juxtaposed either between sort of policy evaluation um, project evaluation type of questions when looking at aid bureaucracy or the sorts of lords of poverty critique that we find in the post-development uh, type of thinking, uh, post-development literature. And what I really wanted to do was do something uh, in between, if you like. Something slightly more nuanced than the, um, than the, 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 the critique, but something more donor-focused than um, sort of literature on uh, effectiveness and performance. So the approach, as Michael said, court politics, uh, very much about actors, their ideas, how they've pursued different strategies, the types of intrigue and personality clashes uh, and rivalry and so on that uh, go with that. The empirical core of the book is really the in-depth interviews that I did 
um, with ministers, senior bureaucrats and, and, and various consultants and so on. And I complemented this with archival material, um, which is sort of up till the, the 90s, as well as uh, other documents that are on the public record. Obviously, this is a snapshot, the empirical material. It's thousands of people who have worked for the aid program. Um, I'm told there's something like 600 metres of files related to aid in the National Archives. Um, obviously, I didn't read them all. <laughs> Um, but I really focused in on the material that I thought would be important for answering the types of questions that I wanted to answer in this book. So essentially what I'm going to do is give you a potted history. Um, again, forgive me if this history uh, is too potted for those of you who are there. Um, and then talk about the legitimacy framework uh, that Michael outlined at the beginning uh, and then we'll open up for some questions. Uh, so I start the book, or oh, the story, sorry, I've got to stand here. I start the book, um, I start the book with the Colombo plan, essentially, um, and talk briefly about the period, um, uh, or the experience of aid in the 50s and 60s. Um, it starts as a very small program, very much focused on um, the rise of communism in Southeast Asia and how that might be combated. Uh, in administrative terms, we're talking six or seven officers in the Department of External Affairs in the 50s who were dedicated to aid work. Uh, and they were all on temporary contracts at that time because the Colombo plan wasn't supposed to uh, go as long as it did. Um, things start to change in the 60s when Hasluck becomes minister. Um, he'd previously been minister for external territories, so had some interest in development issues. He convenes an interdevelopmental committee on, um, on development and starts to consolidate the different functions that were existing within external affairs at the time into one branch uh, called the aid branch. And this branch is important because a number of people who became influential in the, the story of Australian aid um, started out their careers in aid in that branch. Um, so Peter Walensky, who becomes incredibly important under the Whitlam government. Um, W.L. Morrison, who uh, became a member for parliament um, and was crucial in pushing uh, the initial parliamentary committee review on aid in the 70s. Um, and Philip Flood, who was um, Peter Walensky's deputy in the, um, in the 60s and went on to become Australia's first representative to the DAC. Um, so essentially the argument is that this, this small group of people um, who are interested in aid, who had this experience of aid within external affairs and were disgruntled with the way it was being managed, we're looking at international comparisons. In the 60s, you've got the formation of CEDA, you've got the UK starting up its development program, you've got USAID um, beginning. Uh, so looking at these international comparisons and they're, um, they're disgruntled with the Australian experience. So this comes to a head uh, in the 1970s parliamentary, early 1970s parliamentary committee review, um, which was chaired by W.L. Morrison, um, which essentially developed a, a, a bipartisan consensus that aid administration needed to be reformed. Um, and this was a policy the Whitlam government took to election uh, and sought to implement after they won. So the crucial factor here is, um, as I've got the, sort of the key factors on the slide, you've got decolonisation, you've got this international mood around aid. So Whitlam was committed to decolonisation of Papua New Guinea and he had this question of what to do with the, all the staff in the former Department of External Territories. Um, W.L. Morrison was the head of that department, so it's the sort of continuity of the court, if you like, the key individuals who are central to this story. But Willem was also minister, the Prime Minister and the Minister of Foreign Affairs, and so there's this incredible ability of the executive to push through the um, formation of ADA despite considerable bureaucratic opposition from the, the main players in Canberra, um, Foreign Affairs and Treasury in particular. Um, but as quickly as this sort of court was able to assemble ADAR, um, they, very, they very rapidly disperse. So after seven months, Whitlam gives up foreign affairs to Willisey. Uh, Walensky goes on from being his principal advisor to heading up, um, oh, I forget the department now. Might have been, was it? There we go. <laughs> These people are there. Um, <laughs> um, Morrison moved on to become defence minister. Um, and, and, and so this, this group of people who really put it together um, rapidly dispersed. 
Uh, and ADA never really got the new look that they'd hoped, never really um, gained the support that they'd hoped. Uh, considerable infighting and factionalism between the different parts of the bureaucratic assemblage that have been brought together within ADA. Um, and as a result, um, it was relatively short-lived. The final point I want to make about this period, because obviously the Whitlam government in this story emerges as the sort of champion of aid, the first real champion of Australian aid. Um, but in the context of the budget crisis that ultimately brought down the government, they um, considerably cut the budget to Papua New Guinea. And I just make that point very briefly. We can talk about it later if you want to. Um, because what I want to argue later on is that basically every government has a mixed record on aid. <laughs> uh, and the long-term trend is that both parties have consistently cut aid over the last 40 years. Um, and I'll talk about parties more later, but it's just important that I throw that in now. So the Fraser government, one of the first things they do is abolish ADA. Um, there's lots of interesting stories I can tell about this abolition, but I think the most interesting is that Andrew Peacock, as the foreign minister, um, strongly briefed against the abolition. Um, contra his department. It's advice. Um, they also cut the budget, um, and rather than ADA being a statutory agency, which it was under Whitlam, it became this sort of semi-autonomous bureau called ADAB, um, which is essentially what it was right up until Kevin Rudd made it an executive agency in um, 2010. And throughout the 70s uh, and early 80s, the aid program was um, the subject to considerable um, Consider bureaucratic attacks, I guess is the way to call it, um, which culminated in the Lynch Razor Gang uh, in the late 70s. In, and uh, I think it's fair to say that the program was, not the program, but the institution, ADAB, was quite lucky to survive. Uh, and the book tells the story of how, um, how the people within ADAB and the NGO community in particular managed to fight to keep it alive. But then the interesting thing that happens under Fraser is that towards the end of his time in government, the aid budget increases. Um, and the main reason I provide for that in the book was uh, the Chogham uh, meeting was held in Melbourne in 1981 and Fraser needed announcements. <laughs> so there's this interesting, there was this debate about foreign aid about whether it's sort of perverted by diplomatic imperatives or not. And this is one of these interesting cases where um, the aid budget benefits because of quite obvious diplomatic um, necessities. Towards the end of Fraser's tenure, um, a small group within ADAB decided that the, um, the administration in the program required more legitimacy than it had, essentially, that it was suffering from, by death from a thousand cuts um, and that it needed to bolster its profile and standing. Um, and so they came up with this idea for what became the Jackson Review. So this, was a, this, was, this idea was, was put forth under Fraser, but it came to fruition um, under the Hawke government. Um, and in the book I talk about the, the Jackson Rule is essentially the single most uh, important document in the history of Australian aid, um, which really sets the foundation for um, the aid program as a more professional and to, a, and to, to some extent uh, more autonomous organisation. Um, some of the functions that have been lost under the Razor Gang, including the uh, ADAB's corporate functions, were brought back into um, ADAB as a result of Jackson. Um, and many of the sort of policy directions that it set um, well, it lasted uh, well over a decade. But again, to sort of underscore the, the, the up and down nature of aid, in 1986, um, the budget is substantially cut. At the time, it was the, the largest cut ever in Australian aid. It's only since been superseded by the recent, um, the recent cuts. Um, there's a great story around that. I won't tell it, but it's in the book. Uh, it involves... Uh, Bob Dunn is executive playing golf. Uh, yeah, it's just, there you go. You've, you've, got to, you've got to read it now. Um, and the interesting thing about these budget cuts is that the minister at the time, Bill Hayden, essentially offers them up, um, which, again, I'll sort of come back to later when we talk about party politics. Um, throughout the rest of that period, we have the slow budget increase of Australian aid, particularly under, the, uh, under Gareth Evans. Um, but as you see from the, the sort of chart, um, 
well, two things I need to talk about this here. Um, one, it is relatively slow, but also there's this blip. So let me quickly talk about the blip. The blip is essentially artificial. It is um, created by the decision to include um, tertiary education scholarships within the final aid figure. So previously they'd sort of been an implicit subsidy. Um, the government decided to make them explicit, which is why we have this bump. Um, the final thing that's important from this period is the creation of AusAid, essentially, or the naming of AusAid. And I think this is important because it sort of speaks to the idea um, that from the late 80s, there's this conscious effort to try and raise the public profile of the program. Um, and AusAid, this idea of having a name that would be easily recognisable, is part of that. Um, so the Howard government period uh, involves initially a cut to the A budget, which substantially is made up of the abolition of the development import finance facility. Um, and I use this in the book to sort of illustrate the changing place of the commercial side of aid in the program. Um, the untying of aid doesn't happen, the, the sort of full untying, if you like, or the announcement of the full untying doesn't happen for some time later, but I, I sort of argue this is the beginning of that process because Downer very much justified this move on the grounds that um, aid shouldn't be subsidising Australian business. Um, Downer also initiates the Simons Review at this point. This is 1997 we're talking about now, um, which is the, the second major review after Jackson. Um, there's a really interesting story that goes along with that about Downer essentially um, being accused of misleading Parliament over the DIF scheme and the Simons Review uh, in some respects being a, a way of getting him out of that jam. But again, you have to read the book. Um, two other important things here uh, in this period. One is the... Um, so despite being initially somewhat critical or sceptical of aid, um, Downer and Howard eventually um, fall in love with it's too strong. Um, but they certainly start to use it a lot more and spend a lot more aid, um, which includes the initial scale-up, but even before that, um, with the announcement of $1 billion in the aftermath of the tsunami in Indonesia. Um, and the reason for this, I argue in the book, is very much tied to the use of aid in these very practical um, state-building initiatives. Um, Timor... Iraq, Afghanistan, Solomon Islands. And this is a global move. Obviously, it's a security development nexus that we, um, or most people in this room will know though, a lot about. Um, but the aid program um, grows substantially as a result. Um, the other factor, obviously, is, um, as I've got there, the uh, economic boom, which sort of makes that possible. Uh, and then towards the end of their tenure, they deliver the first ever white paper on aid. Um, which is interesting, it's interesting that they would deliver it, it's interesting that there had never previously been a white paper on aid, it sort of speaks to Michael's point about the silence around aid um, and so forth. So I'm being slightly facetious here with one key factor, um, but I think it is the key factor. There's lots of other things going on in this period, um, but I think Kevin Rudd's uh, support for the program is very central to almost everything that happens um, certainly, sort of using the court politics lens that I adopt, um, we can see a very different story for aid when Kevin Rudd's in Cabinet, either as Prime Minister or Foreign Minister, to when he's not. Um, and I think it's also just incredibly interesting that you've got the global financial crisis happening in this period, which previously economic downturn had always been a bad thing for Australian aid, essentially. Um, but with Rudd at the helm, uh, it, it remains immune. Um, so we have the doubling of the scale-up, the double-doubling, uh, made an executive agency in 2010. We've got the Holware Review, which is the third of the, the major reviews. Um, but then towards the end of um, that government, when, when Rudd's out of uh, Cabinet, we have a delay, um, which I'm able to talk about more, but conscious of time. And then the final chapter in this part of the history is the abolition of AusAid uh, and the largest budget cuts in Australian history. Most of you will be well familiar with this side of the story, so I won't go into it in great detail. Um, as Michael points out, one of the interesting patterns, um, which sort of leads to the next slide, um, is that tenure matters for governments when it comes to aid. The longer they're in office, the more money they tend to spend. 
Uh, and maybe that will be repeated, or maybe this government will be the exception. It sort of depends on how long they last, I guess. So the other key lessons I want to draw out of this um, initial potted history. Um, so as, as discussed, this idea that um, individuals really matter for aid, executive matter, executive discretion is really important. Um, without the support of the minister, but particularly the minister and the prime minister. Um, when those two are hand in hand, then, then aid tends to do really well. And when they're not, uh, it struggles. And this is, I guess, most easily illustrated by Whitlam when he was both minister and uh, prime minister and foreign minister. But I think we can see that played out. Um, Peacock and Fraser's leadership rivalry, Hayden, and so on. Now, the second point I think is going to be the most contentious. Uh, and the obvious argument for why the sort of common perception that aid does much better than the ALP is that the coalition has twice been responsible for, for abolishing the aid agency and has cut the aid budget on every time that it's come to office, which is fairly damning evidence, I concede. Um, but I guess the, the counter I want to make is that, yes, the LP has been much more willing to grant the program autonomy from foreign affairs. That's absolutely true. But neither side of government has a great, uh, neither party has a great history in relation to the aid budget. All, all of the parties have both, um, both of the parties rather, have both increased and decreased the budget um, in their respective uh, terms. Um, and this speaks to, I think, uh, essentially, I guess I'm trying to reinforce the first point uh, in making that claim. So the second part of the book is an attempt to try and draw out the more thematic lessons that we can from this story, in particular to sort of focus in on the storylines that the actors have used to try and legitimise the program over this period. Um, it also allows me to draw out the paradoxes or dilemma that is inherent to the aid program, or what are they argue is inherent to the aid program. So policy legitimacy stems from the fact that aid is a multifaceted policy tool that serves multiple objectives simultaneously. And by that I mean it's really useful to do lots of things with. The problem is um, this usefulness, uh, while it safeguards the budget, and it's very easy in budget cabinet to be able to justify or to defend aid by pointing to its many functions. It also leaves the, process, the program open to criticism, particularly from those outside of government. Uh, on the grounds that it's been diverted or uh, perverted, if you like, um, or um, diluted, particularly by more strategic imperatives. So we have this pattern where incoming governments typically attempt to truncate or clarify or resolve this policy dilemma one way or another. So Whitlam establishes ADA, Fraser abolishes it, Hawke does Jackson, um, Howard does the, um, the Simons review with one clear objective. Uh, Rudd does the, the scale up um, and the executive agency and now the recent abolition. So everyone attempts to try and resolve this, but then they later essentially give in to the pragmatics. That's what I'm arguing. The longer they're in office. And as a result of that, they tend to grow the budget. Technical legitimacy stems from this idea that aid policy is complex or that it's more complex or that it's somewhat unique relative to other forms of public policy and requires specialist knowledge to manage well. Um, so the appeal here is essentially to this idea that ADAB or AUSAID or ADA doesn't exist in a vacuum. Internationally, it forms part of a story about the development of the, prof the professionalisation and growth of development industry. Uh, and in the associated group of development practitioners. Um, and aid is essentially caught uh, between this internationally, international community of practice and its norms and standards um, and the types of uh, imperatives that the domestic foreign policy community has. So the issue is that professionalism or appeals to professionalism help legitimise the aid agency over the journey, um, particularly thinking of the Jackson Review here, which essentially argues that the aid programme is really poorly performing, but then resolves that in favour of increased professionalisation. The way to solve the problem of poor performance is increased professionalisation of the program. So it's helped legitimise the program over the journey. It's helped with the establishment of a separate aid agency. But the concern that the aid program is captured by the international community of practice persists uh, and, I argue, tends to heighten the larger the program is. Uh, and the examples here are obviously 
um, ADA, uh, which was about 700 staff, so much bigger than anything else that preceded it until the Rudd scale-up preceded it, succeeded it, uh, and the Rudd scale-up itself. And then finally, administrative legitimacy, um, which is essentially the nub of the Canberra story, if you like. I've only briefly touched on the sort of bureaucratic rivalries that I think are so central to this history. Um, they're certainly central to the initial um, formation and abolition of ADAR, but I argue that they never really go away. And so administrative legitimacy stems from the need to protect the minister and the government today from unnecessary risk by ensuring coherence in program development and delivery. But the problem is we've got these competing versions of coherence. One is about a coherent foreign policy and one is about a coherent program. Um, and what I argue is essentially attempts to resolve that either way are problematic. So we might argue that the current um, or the most recent abolition is an attempt by Minister Bishop to resolve this dilemma or tension in favour of coherent foreign policy. But over the journey we've seen that that tends to uh, precipitate the opposite reaction, which is um, that it makes it much more difficult to do the sorts of nuts and bolts administrative tasks that are required to do aid well um, within that sort of context. Certainly, the, the belief that aid was too externally facing uh, is central to the formation of ADAR in the 70s. Um, and essentially, an attempt to balance these imperatives, I argue, is... Um, been a huge part of the story all along, certainly something that uh, most director generals have focused on quite heavily. So when prime ministers and ministers have been comfortable with this inherent tension, with this ongoing coherence of incoherence, then administrative legitimacy tends to be maintained. So before I talk to the sort of the final lessons from this, I want to say that I don't use this framework in the book as any sort of necessary or sufficient set of conditions. It's an analytic device. It's a heuristic, if you like. I'm not suggesting that we can somehow uh, map the history of Australian aid and say, oh, it had leg administrative legitimacy then and it had policy legitimacy then and didn't then. Um, that's not how I use this. Legitimacy isn't something that's absolute. You don't, you're not ever absolutely legitimate or illegitimate. It's always something that is constantly being negotiated and maintained. It's, so the, the idea of this heuristic is essentially to analytically tease apart the different storylines that actors have used um, and think about how uh, that might help both explain the past but potentially uh, inform how we think about aid policy in the future. So the absence of strong public constituency history shows that each of these forms of legitimacy are really difficult to maintain. And balancing all three has proven um, almost impossible. And that this difficulty, this dilemma, this series of dilemmas, um, can help us explain why the aid program and its administering institution has been subject to this perpetually tenuous and uh, fluctuating existence. And I essentially end with a call for more of this type of work, which is a very academic thing to do. Uh, we should understand more about the relationship between um, aid uh, professionals and practitioners and the government uh, that they're a part of as a, as a way in to some of the complexities of the broader development or aid story. Um, yeah, so I think I'm going to leave it there, given... We've only got about 10 or so minutes for questions. Uh, very happy to respond in any way uh, to anything you, that comes to mind. I'll put the picture back up, so front of mind. I've never met Bill Tuttle, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the back of his head is, uh, yeah. <laughs> Good. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> Did you feel the question? <laughs> right. I, uh, Patrick Kilby. There's, there's another side of it. It's probably side for another book or another thing. Is 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 my thinking about this? And I've just done some thinking about this in a different context altogether, the US context. Is that um, um, and and maybe the advantage of being with DFAT may help this or it may hinder it. Is has I say ADAB, ADA really got 
um, um, the nature of development from the developing country's point of view. Is it sort of always been a bit of an outsider trying to do stuff, either diplomatic or doing good or what have you, rather than really seeing it as a, as a, as a diplomatic, true diplomatic leader? I remember a seminar by Robin Davies when he was with um, I'll say it at the time, when he talked about the ramp up of money to Indonesia, because he was in Indonesia at the time, and he made the point in a bit of a close shop um, seminar that from Indonesia's point of view, the extra billion dollars isn't what the game is about. And John Howard may think that is actually leverage, but for Indonesia, that's very nice, thank you very much, we'll use it very well, but the main game is actually about something else. And so, is, is that really depth of understanding of what the game is in any bilateral relationship part of, part of some of these issues? Mm. It's a really good question. Um, I'm not sure if the book has an answer. <laughs> I mean, it's very much a support. It's very much a supply side story, if you like. Um, and so I'm sort of reticent to evaluate it one way or the other because I'd have to go and talk to recipients, right? and I haven't. Um, yeah, which is kind of a, a really neat way of saying I don't know, <laughs> but it's a good question. Hi, Anna Gillis. Um, hi, Jack. Hey. Um, uh, in a way, following on from Patrick's question, mm. and, and just, uh, I think, uh, I'm really looking forward to reading the book. It sounds fantastic, <laughs> really, really good. Um, when you talk about sort of the, the, the first point of sort of analysis being the very shallow public support yep. for the aid program, uh, in much of what you said, I think there's uh, a revelation of very shallow understanding amongst the foreign policy condescenti in yep. Australia about the capacity of the aid program to actually provide um, positives. I mean, do you think which which comes first, the chicken or the egg? You know, is it public is it public support that's really important here, or is it actually a more sophisticated understanding amongst uh, the, the foreign policy um, cohort about the way that aid programs can actually deliver for Australia's interests by doing good in development? You know, doing good development. Yeah. Um... I think increasing public support is really difficult. Maybe impossible, I don't know. Um, in which case then, your second point about increasing awareness within the Australian forest policy community becomes the main game, I think, in terms of support for the legitimacy of the aid program. Uh, and maybe the merger helps that in the end, I'm not sure. I mean, that's, that's an open question for me. Um, Something else I was going to say. It's just, it's and maybe the aid program can do enough to actually uh, undertake that kind of education kind of process. Potentially, this is what I was going to say. So I think what's interesting, sorry, um, it's interesting to look at the bureaucratic rivals uh, to the aid program over the period. Foreign affairs is the obvious one. Um, but I actually think Treasury is more important. Uh, and I think historically that I'm not, I don't think the Treasury um, I don't think that the, the Treasury antipathy is anywhere near as personal as perhaps the foreign affairs one is but it's far more significant uh, and I think historically been far more uh, influential uh, so I think if there's actually a community that the aid program needs to be influencing more it's, it's the Treasury uh, because that's where the purse strings are held Certainly, if you look at the cabinet submissions, so the example I'll give is this. So when ADAR is abolished, um, the decision is taken in the Economic Committee of Cabinet, not the Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, so that in itself speaks, I think, to the importance of that community. The lynch raiser gain is obviously something that comes out of Treasury and Finance. So I think you can argue the opposite. You can argue the opposite that um, in the 2000s, uh, as the scale-up... Um, is taken, uh, taken on that, uh, that influencing or that support from the Treasury was perhaps uh, done better than had been in the past. But I don't have those cabinet documents, so that's, that's speculation. Yeah. Uh, you make almost no mention of NGOs, and I'm just interested in, yeah. in the role you think they may have played or may not have played in, in raising the profile of the aid program within yep. the Australian public and influencing the executive as well. Yeah. Um, 
Patrick's written the book on NGOs. <laughs> and basically everything I write about NGOs is taken from Patrick in the book. So uh, <laughs> um, one way would be to defer to him. So I'll let him answer after I have a first go. Um, there's definitely periods when the NGOs have been really important. And the obvious example is the, um, is the, the Razor Gang in the, um, the end of the 70s. Um, the NGOs community support at that time, I think, was, was crucial. I think the other pattern, though, that is really important, and, and Patrick can speak to this, is that um, NGOs, I think, have become increasingly reliant on the government aid program for funding. Uh, and I think there's a real question as to what extent they can be as critical as they perhaps need to be of government policy in that environment. Um, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. No? <laughs> I'm interested in your personal opinion as to what would be the appropriate level of aid as a proportion of GDP. <laughs> I don't have one. Really, I don't. Um, yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, my wife and I were recruited to work in Laos in 1970 by the Department of Foreign Affairs on Friday afternoon. Um, we worked there for nearly five years. It changed from ADA to ADAP. We noticed no difference. We were aware that we were working under the auspices of Colombo Plan, but that made no difference really either. Yeah. I've returned to work for AUSA on different contracts at different times. Do you make any comment about the what I saw as the privatisation of aid over those years? Uh, what do you mean by some back privatisation for me? For Movement example? from working directly for that if you like, yep. to working for contractors. Yep. Um, so yeah, the first point uh, about difference from the dip from ADAR to ADAR, that's certainly a reflection that I heard a lot, which was there wasn't a huge amount. Um, certainly for people in the field, I think, I think that partially depends on where you sat in the organisation as to how that difference was felt. Um, in relation to the privatisation, yes. Um, I do cover it in the book. I remember what I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to contradict myself, particularly given that time. Um, um, I guess the really long historical perspective is that previously gov Australian government departments delivered aid, Department of Public Works and so on, and that it, over the period that's changed. Um, but that's a very, that's a very long, that's, that, that change happened a long time ago. Um, so I'm not sure how important it is to this story. Um, the change occurred in about 1993. I think yeah. we were the last people to work directly for the Department of Foreign Affairs. How do you mean? Employed by the Department of Foreign Affairs to deliver Australian aid. This is private contract. <coughs> directly for the government. Okay. We'll have to talk about it later. <laughs> Last question. Yeah. All right, sure. So, um, I guess you introduced your, well, first of all, thanks for fantastic yeah. um, book. You introduced the story as a, a, or the book as a Canberra based story. Yep. And I just wanted to ask you, um, I mean, how important has, have external factors been um, in explaining this story? Because you talked about how aid was first provided in response yep. to, to communism in yep. Southeast Asia. Um, obviously, um, external developments were important in the Scale up under Allen. Yep. Um, and similarly, I think under Wright, you could talk about the, the Millennium Declaration and so forth, yep. it being a delayed response to yep. the um, Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd agree with all those points. I would add in humanitarian disasters, yeah. sort of macabrely tend to be good for aid. Um, uh, the, the professional community obviously takes its cue from international actors. So, yeah, absolutely um, important. Um, but I guess the story in the book is about how the Canberra community has interpreted those into external events and trends and so on, and how they cause um, cause tensions, essentially, one way or the other. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks a lot, Jack. We are out of time, I'm afraid. So uh, I'm sure we've got more questions. Jack would be happy to discuss with you. We don't have copies of the book outside, but they are available for purchase online, um, either hard copy or digital. Uh, thanks everyone for coming. We're very uh, proud to be associated with this book. Of course, one of our you know purposes or aims at the Development Policy Centre is to generate more research 
around aid. And, you know, when you start digging, uh, you know, there is quite a lot of research being done, a number of PhD students here, uh, and um, Jack's work is a really uh, important contribution uh, to have that uh, history of Australian aid written up. So thank you very much, Jack. Thanks, Michael, for launching the book, and thanks all for coming. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.